0: Well, one of the ways I get a gauge on my spiritual life and where I'm at in my relationship with God often comes by my level of genuine interest in the things of God, how much I actually desire to learn and pursue those things that bring me closer to God. And Jesus said in John chapter 17 that eternal life is knowing God, it's relationship with God. It's closeness to our Maker and therefore investing into that relationship by listening to, learning from, and obeying God's Word should captivate the minds and hearts of Christians more than anything else. We should be a people who are filled with anticipation to gather on Sunday mornings, to worship God through song, to dive into God's Word together. We should be eager to engage in conversations with others about what God is teaching us as we are pursuing Him and just how we are marveling at His continued grace and the hope that He gives us. We should long for quiet moments with God, meditating on His Word and communicating with Him in prayer. And yet, if you're anything like me, you get distracted. If you're like me, things can just creep into your life and start to consume your mind and your heart and slowly you just start to, uh, to be distracted and drawn away from a pure devotion to the life that is in Christ. Every single person in this room is prone to wander and to waver. That's a reality. And yet the beauty of God's design and and the beauty of the church is this is to be a place where we encourage one another as we lovingly remind each other of the truth that we have in Christ, where we keep each other accountable to living in such a way that reflects the goodness of the gospel that we've been shown, a place where we spur each other on to love and good deeds because of our hope. I don't think we often realize that in order, or that God has given us the opportunity to live fruitful lives, and that your life can have ripple effects into eternity. Think about that for a minute. What you do in your life today can impact eternity. I don't know if anyone woke up this morning with that thought on their mind. I doubt it, but that is the reality. For all of us who are in Christ, we get to be a part of this amazing story and mission of God in this world to see people come to life and get to know eternal life through Christ. Well, we are concluding our study through the New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was a young church leader on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And we've seen that Paul is writing to encourage him. Paul is writing to both uh, instruct Titus on how to strengthen the church, but also how the church should be supervised and how things in the household of God should be, uh, should be ran. And the main theme that we've seen emerge from this letter is at the top of your notes there. The, the title of this series is that good doctrine produces good works. What we believe to be true and the truths of the gospel, believing those things will manifest themselves in our behavior. That's what we've seen time and time again through Titus. And last week, if you hear nothing but this today, hear this. Last week we saw very clearly that we are not saved by our good deeds. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved unto good deeds. We are saved unto good works. And that is huge. Jesus Christ and his gospel, his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf. And our faith in what he has done is the only thing that can save us and set us free. The good we do is a byproduct of our salvation. It's looking at what God has done and saying, Thank you, Jesus. Now let me live for you. That's hugely important. And the main idea that we're going to dive into this morning is that the gospel transforms us and continues to transform us into profitable, accountable, and humble Christians. That's what the gospel does in our lives, and so I'm going to rewind and reread a few verses from last week, just to to make sure we bring back that context to reemphasize that we're not saved by our works, by what we're saved by Christ's work, and then we'll go into our passage for today. So, if you read along with me, Titus chapter three, we're going to read verses four through fifteen. It says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you... Do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenith, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. All right. So in a nutshell, here we have Paul instructing Titus to insist that those who have believed the good news of the gospel be careful to devote themselves to good works, devote themselves to good that is a reflection of God himself. And Jesus said these words in Matthew five sixteen He said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who is in heaven. The good that we do is meant to shine the spotlight on Jesus so that people would say, oh, wow, like this Jesus must be something if you're willing to live and and pursue the things that are important to him. Now, this can be a little difficult in our culture today because we live in, in a day and an age where a lot of people do a lot of good things and celebrate doing good things, right? Even my Starbucks cup from this past week said, give good on it and i read that and i was like man starbucks must be a christian company now a few of you are paying attention appreciate that here's the thing is that for the christian our motive in doing good and our very definition of what is good is vastly different than the world's vastly different We're not trying to make others think highly of us. We're not trying to build a reputation for ourselves in a community where people are just, man, we really respect that guy. He's such a good guy, and he's just an outstanding citizen. Like That is not our goal. Our goal is to say, man, I live this way because I have received goodness and grace from God far above and beyond anything I ever deserve. And I just want to live unto him. That's why I do good. That's why I live the way that I do. And from our passage today, I think we're going to see three specific ways that if we're actually doing this, the world is going to to see us as different. When the world interacts with us and we are applying these things, we're going to be noticeably different. Different, and you have them in your notes here, but here's the thing is we're going to be seen in difference in the way we speak, in our conversations, in the actions, in the way we live, and by our humility, the way we go about carrying ourselves. So, point number one is this is that we are called to be a people who engage in profitable conversations profitable conversation. So in verse 8 and 9, Paul clearly contrasts what is profitable versus unprofitable speech, okay? Verse 8, he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, to speak of these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, Paul is saying that genuine faith in God is going to produce a godly life and godly actions that are beneficial, that profit the people around us. And then in verse 9, he contrasts that. He says, "...but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless." Back in their day and age, the biggest dividing issue with the church had to do with the Old Testament Jewish law. And Paul here, once again, is referring back to the circumcision party, the Judaizers. He talked about them earlier in this letter, but there was a group of Jewish Christians who taught that converts to Christianity, in addition to faith in Jesus, had to be circumcised. And as they're propagating this false teaching, it's creating all sorts of issues within the church where people are like, wait a minute, I put my faith in Christ. I was baptized. Like, what do you mean now I have to get circumcised? What are you talking about? And it's creating all these debates and division in the church. And they were, uh, as we are told from Paul in this letter, This type of quarreling is unprofitable. It's actually worthless because debates about things in the Old Testament law are not gospel issues. They're not central issues to the Christian life. And yes, we should have great conversations, productive conversations about, man, how does the Old Testament still apply to our lives today? But that's in conversations. The law as it was lived out in the Old Testament is no longer lived out the same because Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of that law. And we now live unto him. But what's happening in our text is it's just people keep stirring up division about these things, saying, no, 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 you have to be circumcised if you are going to be a Christian. Instead of letting people rest solely on the good news... That through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, our sin is paid for, our shame is covered, and we've been reconciled to God through faith. The gospel is Jesus, period. Not Jesus plus anything. Jesus alone is our salvation. In the church today, we deal with plenty of secondary issues that I believe people treat and act like are central issues. And they actually create quite a bit of division. I just want to go through a few that I've personally heard people argue about, that I've personally been involved in seeing, creating quarrels within the church that have been unproductive. Let's see if you align or have had this experience. First one, denominational affiliation. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm an Anglican. People are quicker to align themselves with a denomination or a camp than they align themselves with Jesus. That shouldn't be the case. What about this one? Vaccines. Ooh, Should we vaccinate our kids or shouldn't we? Okay. (laughs) But it's an issue. And now, oh, I haven't vaccinated my kids, so you're not going to have me over at your house because, heaven forbid, an unvaccinated kid's around a vaccinated kid. What might happen? What about food? Organic versus GMO. We laugh because it's silly, but but people treat these like they're of first important issues. Here's one that's going to be a little bit of a stinger. Political affiliation. I just went there. Right, Right versus left. What news station do you tune into? And the last one, schooling choices for our kids. Homeschool, public school, private Christian school. Now don't get me wrong, the gospel has ramifications on all these things. and should be the filter through which we look at all of these things. But not one of these things is a gospel issue. Every single thing I just mentioned is secondary And if you can't have a civil conversation with other believers about any one of those things that I mentioned without getting upset or demanding that your opinion is right, you are in the wrong. Period. Period. They are not gospel issues. They are things that we should be able to have healthy and maybe sometimes a little bit heated conversation around. But man, if they are making division and and creating wedges in our hearts with another brother or sister in Christ, we are getting off the rails, folks. We are getting into a dangerous territory. And I've seen a lot of individuals, I've seen a lot of churches miss the mark here. Good intentions. Everything begins with good intentions. Maybe a church says, hey, we're going to adopt a homeless ministry. That's good, right? Jesus said, take care of the homeless. Awesome. That's great. But pretty soon, everything in the church becomes about making sure the needs of the homeless are met and the gospel message gets taken out of its central place. And that's when you get off. Or maybe a church gets totally uh, wrapped around a, a political issue. Or maybe it's to a church's uh, advantage to take a certain stance politically because they live in a place of, of the country that's very much one way or the other. And so to, to have favor with people, you're gonna, you're gonna take the stance that's in line with what they think or the, the majority opinion. And the gospel, again, can get out of its central place. Again, if we can't have in conversations around these things without becoming divisive and quarrelsome, it is better to abstain from the conversation altogether. That's my challenge to us. If you can't go there on one of the topics I listed, just don't go there. Protect your heart and protect the church from being divided. All right, hold on, because I uh, one of these is going to sting, I'm sure, because it did for me. So I just made a list of questions that I want us to, to each just kind of do a little self-examination, okay? along the lines of what we've been talking about. But I I just want you in your own mind, your own heart, just if, if any of these reveal that something secondary has become central, let God do what he will. Are you more concerned and invested in building up the body of Christ in love and unity than you are with airing your own opinion? Okay. Does your blood boil more quickly over people with different political views than you then your heart breaks for those in your life who don't know Jesus. Do you find yourself mentally and emotionally consumed with comparison to other people's convictions and opinions more than you are delighting in the word of God? All all I'm doing through these questions is just, what what is God going to surface in your heart. What does God want to speak to you? And and here's what Romans 14 tells us, gives us the the right and accurate perspective on this. It says this as for one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome people, but not as an opportunity to air your opinion on whatever issue you want to air your opinion. Check this out. The one who believes he may eat anything, one who believes that while a weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, this is an issue of food. I'm sorry if you're vegan. It just calls you a weak person. It says this, Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? If it is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld. uh, He will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord since he is giving thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Every single person in this room is at a different place in your faith journey. Not two people in this room share the same convictions and opinions on all the topics that I've already mentioned. It's just, it's not the case. But here's the deal, is that that God's word is, gives us the freedom to have our own personal opinions in different categories that are not gospel issues. We have that freedom. But here's the thing. Here's the only caveat. Here's the only if. It's if indeed our motive in doing the things we do or holding the opinions we have is because we think we are honoring God by doing so, and it's a reflection of our hearts giving thanks to God. Did you catch that? That's huge. That's a huge deal. So the main point is this, is that profitable conversations are ones where we encourage one another in the things that are central to God's word and that are central in building up the church in love and in unity. Don't let a secondary thing cause division in your hearts. Opinions are just opinions. But the word of God is eternal and true. And the word of God will motivate us to have productive conversations about things that matter and things that bring good into this world. So we are to be a people who speak life and have profitable conversations both amongst each other and with those in the world around us. Let's keep going. Verse 10. Point number two. Accountable actions. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, did that hit any of you? It's like, oh, that's harsh. Does that stop you from what? That's like three strikes and you're out. What is going on here? Well, we've had uh, a cop hanging out in our neighborhood as of late. And my wife and I are both native Californians. And if you're familiar with the term California stop, um, we sometimes uh, practice this. And it's where you just kind of roll through a stop sign. Like stopping is just like slowing down, really. And uh, my wife got caught doing a California stop. And uh, pretty funny, because the officer pulled her over, and he's like, yeah, so you didn't fully stop at that. And she's like, yeah, I'm from California. <laughs> <sighs> and luckily, you know, she's nine months pregnant, legit. Like, this was right before uh, our son was born, and the cop kind of laughed and whatnot. And she ended up getting off with a warning, which I was grateful for. Um, like, I didn't want to pay 150 bucks for that. But I find it so interesting when a police officer gives us a warning when we've clearly broken the law that we have this sigh of relief, right? It's like, oh, yes. You're even excited about it, right? Like, it just, it like, I got out of something. Like, this is awesome. You you might even smile. But then when you actually get a ticket for breaking the law, you get upset. (laughs) Right? Anyone? I've, I've had this experience. Okay, a couple honest people appreciate that. It's just fascinating, right? It's like, I'm completely in the wrong, and justice is being upheld, and I just, oh, that makes me so mad. It's funny that we don't translate that into our relationship with God, right? It's like, if every time we fail, like, boom, ticket, gotcha. That's not how God treats us. In the church, though, and from this text, it says to warn those who stir up division. And we should begin to review, uh, to view warnings more like when we've actually been in violation and we get off the hook. Like if a believer comes to you and says, Hey, I'm seeing something in your life that, that is actually creating division in our church. Like, can we talk about that? Like it just, just be cautious when you're talking about this. It's coming across uh, not in a healthy way. Those warnings, we should receive those with joy. Like, that's good. That's God's way of protecting His church and keeping us unified. It's something that should be happening all the time. It's a gift of God's grace and it's a reminder that we don't have it all together. That we can, again, fall into uh, traps and our flesh can take over. So these warnings are, are actually gifts of God, because God does take division and sin within His church seriously, but He's also given us serious solutions and how to deal with that. Matthew 18, these words are from Jesus' mouth and they're very similar to what we just heard Paul write to Titus. Jesus said this If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So first of all, go directly to the person that you have conflict with. Don't go and bring in other people into it. Go directly to try to reconcile. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. Great. That's, that's good. That's unifying. That should happen. Then it says, but if he doesn't listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he still refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Do not extend fellowship to that person. Now, here's the deal. The divisiveness that that Paul is instructing Titus to deal with harshly and the sin that Jesus is talking about in this text are both directed towards those who are unrepentant. That's important. Those who are unrepentant, those who are hard-hearted, those who are stirring up division, who are purposely creating issues, and they don't see that as an issue. Or those who are living in willful sin that Scripture clearly calls sin, and yet they just they don't care. It's like, no, I don't want to give up my sin. I love it. I'd rather have that. That's who he's telling to deal with so harshly. And again, it may seem harsh on the surface, but... Man, I see God's grace all over this. And it's like, hey, warn him, plead with him. Take other people, plead with them. Take the whole church, plead with them. Like This is a begging of, hey, this is destructive for your life. Turn away from that. God has so much better in store for you. That's the heart. And the heart of accountability within the church is always for restoration, always to protect the unity and the purity of the church. It's those who refuse to acknowledge that they are in the wrong but continue to cling to their own opinions and sin, those who care less about the impact that they're having on those around them or what the Word of God has to say. That's who these passages apply to. And just like for us receiving a warning for a traffic violation and it comes without a big sigh of relief, so should godly accountability in our lives. If someone sees something that that's destructive in our lives and they point it out, we should be like, thank you. I have been wrestling with that. I have been wrong. I have been getting off what is central in this area. Well, a couple days ago, I found myself walking in the flesh through justifying my own behavior. I was at home and I just got totally into task mode. And in so doing, I really was neglecting my wife and my kids, uh, in their uh, emotional needs. And then how this manifests itself for me is I just start barking orders, right? Like, pick that up. I already told you to do that. Come on. Don't you hear me? What's going on? What's your problem? Instead of, Hey, come here. Let's talk. And actually shepherding their heart and talking through, Hey, you know, you really honor God and honor mommy and daddy when you listen to what our word, what we say in our word. And actually entering in with like a gentle and soft spirit. And you know, right, when, when, it, what's going on in your own heart, like what frame of mind you're in. So I just knew that in that moment I cared more about getting things done than I did about shepherding my family. And so yesterday I sat down around lunch with the, with my kids and, my wife and I had to take ownership for my attitude. I said, "Look, Daddy's been wrong. I've been wrong the last day and a half in the way I've been speaking, the way I've been treating you guys. It has not been right, and I need you guys to forgive me. Will you forgive me for not um, not speaking with the kindness that is reflective of Christ?" And uh, kids are just so amazing. They're so resilient, you know. They're just like, "Of course, give you a hug," you know. Um, and so that's just awesome and a gift of God's grace, but. One of the things that God used in that process is, you know, I've been meditating on God's word. I've been soaking in this passage, and and the passage in Luke 17 came to mind that says this, watch yourself, keep watch of yourself. And then if a brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Even if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times return to say, I repent, you must forgive him. What this means as the mark of genuine Christians is not perfection, but it's the ability to acknowledge when we are in the wrong and to take full ownership when we are. I believe that one of the greatest ways that God has given us and one of his greatest gifts to keep our relationships strong is by a continual seeking of forgiveness from one another when we wrong the other person. If everyone would just own their junk, we would be so unified. Marriages would be flourishing. Kids would be flourishing under parents who are humble and repentant. But I also believe that one of the most impactful ways the world is going to see us as different is if we're willing to own our junk to them. Maybe you wrong a coworker through speaking a certain way. Maybe you do something you know that was not right. And to go to somebody who doesn't know Christ and to say, hey, I'm wrong. I was wrong in this. Will you forgive me? Try it the next time that happens. And then just watch the look on their face. People don't do that in our culture. People don't take responsibility for their actions. But if we're, as believers, doing that, just every, in every aspect of our lives, the world's going to take notice. And they say, whoa, like, okay, I, I guess I'll forgive you. It's an incredible experience in a way that we're seen as different. Because here's the thing is you can't, as a Christian, become spiritually arrogant. You can't become uh, get a moral superiority complex because Titus 3.3 3 from last week told us this, for we ourselves were all once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were no different. We've all been there. We've all lived solely for ourselves. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the Christian has acknowledged, I desperately need the mercy and grace of God, and I believe that it's mine through Jesus Christ. That's the only difference. And now I want to live as as one who follows Christ and seeks to live a life unto him, which brings us to our last point, point number three. The gospel transforms us to be humble servants. Let's finish off Titus 12 through 15. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenith, the lawyer, and Paulos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help causes of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. So as Paul is wrapping up this short letter, he gives some very specific instructions as, as opposed, uh, in regards to his future plans. He's going to be sending some people through the region. He's saying, hey, these guys are going to come by. They're going to stop in. Take care of them. Make sure their needs are met. Give them whatever they need to continue on their journey. And then he says this in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not Be unfruitful. You want to protect your life from being unfruitful in the things of God. Learn to devote your life to good and helping uh, those needs that surface in your midst. It's interesting because this word learn, learning anything takes both time and intentionality, right? It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of intentionality. And the way we learn from one another how to do good, I think a lot of it is observing those in our midst who are actually doing good and saying, wow, hey, tell me, what are you doing? How do you serve other people? How are you aware of these things? And I'm totally humbled by the way our church loves and serves one another and has just grown in this over the two and a half years of our existence. People serve each other all the time by bringing meals when new babies are born. I've seen people go to the hospital on their own initiative when there's been unexpected health challenges. I've seen people financially support those who had unexpected tragedy happen in their lives. I've seen people just be faithful to pray for one another and encourage one another in the midst uh, here even on Sunday morning. It's been amazing. And for all of us, we just need to just keep our eyes open. Like, what is the good that's happening around us? And how do we get in on it? We need to learn. We need to grow. And this word devoted or, being, or devotion means to give time and resources towards something. It's an active participation. That's what devotion means. And in chapter 3 alone, check this out. Paul has encouraged Titus with these words. It says, be ready for every good work. Be careful to be devoted to every good work and learn to be devoted to every good work. He sounds a little bit uh, r- repetitive, right, <laughs> in these things. So be ready, eyes open. Be careful, be thoughtful of the good that you could do and learn to be devoted. Continue to learn from others who are doing good. As I got to thinking about this, the only way it's possible, the only way this happens is if we each take personal responsibility to clothe ourselves in the humility of Christ. It's the only way this is going to happen. If we clothe ourselves in genuine humility. And this is a passage, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. If if you have never read this or haven't memorized this, I would encourage you to, to devote this to memory. It's huge. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The humility of Christ is beyond all compare. The God of the universe became a human being subjecting himself to death so that you and I could have life. That is amazing. He willfully put his royalty aside so that he could come to our rescue. What an example for us to look at and to follow. And I've heard this said before, is that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Okay? I think there's a vast difference. I think there's a lot of false humility out there when people are just like, oh, I'm just a terrible person. Like, you know, kind of get this Eeyore complex, which is like, you're just like, I'm worthless, I got nothing. It's like, Uh, Well, actually, um, if you're a follower of Christ, you're called the child of the living God. Hmm. Do you think God sees you as worthless? No. God sees you as incredibly valuable. God has called you his child. Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. That's what humility produces in us. And in a selfish world, the humble of heart who seek to serve others are going to stick out. We are going to shine like the stars in the midst of a self-centered, self-seeking culture. And when we are devoted to doing good and bringing good into this world, we will have an impact on eternity the world will take notice and people will say what what is this who is this jesus that you're living for your life is different you have a joy and a peace about you tell me about this god let's pray